0: Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Cut the Shit, a podcast series that aims to take a closer look at the impact of the IT industry, both the good and the bad. Cut the Shit is brought to you by Plow Networks, a managed IT services company based just outside Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Brian Link, EVP of Products and Services here at Plow, and I'll be your host for this series. I'll ask questions and with the help of our guests, try to dig deep on some of the key challenges we all face dealing with IT. So with that, let's cut the shit and get started. Hi everyone, Uh, I know I said I might not be doing this anymore, but here I am again, riding solo, just like that old rap song. Uh, I'm recording this on the weekend, uh, which is a bit weird for me, it feels a little bit like doing a school project or something. Um, And since school did just start back, I guess that kind of makes sense. Uh, But I'm going to press on because I have a pretty interesting grab bag of topics to cover today. Um, But before we jump in, I want to re-remind you um, of a few upcoming topics that we haven't gotten to yet, but that we're going to before the end of the year. Uh, the first one is this idea of differing perspectives or gathering different perspectives on how non-IT executives think about and value technology. I feel like that might be a good use of our time um, to talk to some business folks about how they think about technology, how do they value it, um, both within their own companies and um, you know just kind of conceptually. Uh, and then, of course, the couple of others we talked about before, the black hat versus white hats and the hacking world and sort of what that's all about. Um, and then we've got an interview with a, a female CEO of a tech company that serves the needs of disabilities um, that they've got a really interesting story. I'm still trying to get that on the books, but I think that one's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so with that, let's jump in. Um, okay, uh, in honor of back to school, since we already talked about that a little bit, uh, I'm going to go back to my childhood for a minute. Um, don't worry, this isn't a couch session, but, um, and it'll make sense, I think. Um, as a child of the late 70s, early 80s, I grew up watching Schoolhouse Rock. Uh, the schoolhouse rock shorts between cartoons on Saturday mornings for you youngsters out there. You used to only be able to see cartoons on the on Saturdays. So it was a big deal. Um, and these were pretty cool. They're famous. I know everybody knows about them. Um, some are more famous than others. You know, I'm just bill probably the most famous um, on and on. Uh, but they had this one, it was this kind of hippie song about the number three, you know, three, it's a magic number. Uh, I don't really get that one so much, but I remember it. In fact, I can remember all the words to the songs, which is, it's kind of weird, even though, because uh, it, was, it wasn't it was a very good song. Um, but in honor of that song, and since school has just started back, I figured it made sense, I'm going to cover three topics today. Um, the first one uh, is inflation and what to do about it, if anything. Uh, and then I'll get to the other two after we knock this one out. But I, I thought what I'd do on inflation since, I mean, let's face it, the media's beat this one to death. It's a huge topic right now. Lots and lots of people are talk about it, talking about it. So there's very little I'm going to be able to do to you know, add something interesting to that particular, um, you know, I have no insights on inflation. I don't have any predictions on it. Um, more just looking at it from the perspective of where I sit and in particular our company and what we're experiencing and, and wondering, you know, we're thinking about some ways to try to deal with that. And I was just curious if others, um, are thinking about this. In fact, I'm sure you are, if you're thinking similarly, or if you're thinking different and if you're thinking different or you're struggling, maybe this will be helpful. Um, but <clears throat> so with that, you know, we, when I thought about it in terms of how inflation is infecting affecting us, not infecting uh, we've we've heard enough of that word in the past couple of years um in, uh, how it's affecting us, you know there's really kind of three areas I thought of that made that that where we're seeing it probably the most specifically um and the first is just we've seen some across the board increases in prices from some of our suppliers and and I'm guessing that you guys have probably seen that as well um, some of those may be um directly related to companies, uh, internal costs going up. Some of it is probably just opportunistic. You know, if prices are going up all over the board, it's a good time to raise prices, right? If you're in the business of, of selling something to somebody, because if everybody else is raising prices, you probably, I use the expression, get away with it, but it's probably okay. You you won't get as much pushback if everyone else is raising prices too. So we're both seeing, you know, those, these across the board increases. And then of course, we're seeing increased prices on you know just consumer goods and commodities stuff that we're having to buy um and and again i know that everybody is experiencing that and and frankly there's not a ton we can do about it other than you know just pay attention to it and and try to maybe look for other ways to tighten the belt here and there to to sort of offset that if you can and then the last area and there's been a lot of talk about this too and and i think this will probably be more relevant um to the second the, the second topic i'm going to cover today and that's We've seen, you know, pressure from it for, from in terms of inflation on salaries and wages, and those are, you know, we're not sure if that's macro or if it's related to competitors or you know bidders for talent around technology, you know, tech talent uh, that are, that's around us because uh, we're based in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a hot market right now. There's some interesting things going on around us in terms of companies who are looking to hire and hire aggressively, and so that has certainly had an impact on everybody's um, everybody's ability to hire, um, at various levels, you know, down to the sort of tier one level up, you know, and on up the food chain all the way to the, uh, you know, to, to senior level folks. So those are sort of the three areas where we're seeing the biggest impact of, of inflation. And again, I'm not talking about my personal life or any of that stuff. All that stuff is there. And again, there's plenty of, of conversation around that, thinking of it more within the context of our own business and in in yours as well as, as you, um, as you operate inside your company. And so, you know, what do you do about that really? I mean, or is there anything to do other than just try to try to go along and get along? And and I think the comment, I think the answer is probably some of both. Um, I think the first thing is probably, you know, one thing I think we, maybe we, I don't know if we'll, we'll probably never learn this lesson, but I keep thinking that maybe we will is at some point we, and I mean the collective, we not, plow networks or your company or anybody else but we as a society need to probably admit that forecasting in terms of in in terms of its ability to really predict the future it just is it really doesn't work it's it's basically impossible it doesn't mean you can't now when i say that it doesn't mean you just throw up your hands and you just go day to day but to expect that we're going to know what the world looks like a year from now or two years from now um is a fool's game, right? So at the very least you need to have some sort of a probability on that and be hedging against the the percentage of, of, uh, of that probability that, that your prediction is wrong. Um, and I don't think we've done a lot of that, uh, as a as kind of, as a business culture, certainly not from an economics perspective. Um, if you look at, if you look at our, our approach on things, uh, we've been in this incredibly low rate environment for a long time. And I think most people just considered that was just going to be the way it was forever um and in fact we we know that's what people were saying cuz you can go and look and you can see the quotes and that clearly was not the case they they were wrong um and a couple of people have said they were wrong others have said maybe maybe they weren't wrong uh, or or here's why they were only sort of wrong or something like that but whatever i'm not in the game of predicting so it doesn't matter um but for us as a company we do have to predict we we every day we have to predict because certain things in in, in the kinds of investments that we have to make as a company and i'm sure that you have to make in your company are not things that are just day to day. Um, And and the best answer, the simplest example for us is hiring, right? Hiring new people is not something you can just do. You know, if you need a new person today, you don't get somebody started and they, and they go full tilt tomorrow, right? There's a, there's a significant lead, uh, you know, lag time uh, in terms of finding a person, getting them onboarded, getting them trained and up and contributing. The flip side is if at some point you think you need them, uh, you you know, your forecast says you need 10 people and you so you go hire 10 people and it turns out you only need five. It's not that easy to just get rid of people. I mean, uh, despite the fact that, you know, we're not a union shop and people are working at will and all that kind of stuff. It's not that simple. Right. This we are not this is not, um, you know, these aren't widgets uh, in, in that sense. And so having to try to figure out where you're going with some kind of forecasting is is critical. But knowing what that looks like um, and being, you know, pretty conservative about that and being and having a lot of humility around what it, it, you know, what it entails, I think is important. Because if not, you're going to get yourself into trouble either by not hiring enough, you know, not hiring anybody or having a way to hire anybody or hiring too many people, both of which are, you know, both of which are bad. Um, So, you know, I think that, you know, that, that dealing, you know, being really honest with ourselves and being very you know having a lot of humility around uh, our ability to forecast the future uh, i think is really important and so kind of downstream from that there's a couple of things that we're trying to do right so we're continually trying to seek out operating methods that aren't as dependent on predicting the future right and so is there a way for us to match spending to revenue where possible and you know there are some things you can do you can you can leverage outsourcing for some of that or contracts with partners that have variable uh, you know variable income based on Uh, you know, there are your expenses spin up if you get a contract, that sort of thing. But that's really, I mean, you can't do everything that way. The idea that you can, at least in our business, um, isn't going to work because we do want to have a group of folks that work with us over the long time that are part of our team, that are ingrained in our culture, that kind of stuff. And that doesn't lend itself well to what I just described. So, you know, that is a challenge for sure. Um, I do think we are, you know, in in we live in a world where multi-year contracts and locking people in is, um, it's pretty common. Um, and, and we even have some, we even have some long-term contracts, um, although not that many. Um, and we're, you know, we're having fewer and fewer every day because we don't want, we, don't, we want our customers to basically be doing business with us because they want to, not because they have to. Um, you know, that is a recipe for, um, uh, frustration and anger from your customers if they're unhappy with your business, but with your service as a as a service provider and yet they still have to keep paying you right that is not the place anybody wants to be and so we're trying to work around that as best we can um, within the construct of our business and that that part you know does make some of this trickier but hey look if you know if we'll get to in, in kind of my second my second second topic um, if you're good at what you do and you're adding value right, Regardless of what's happening with, with in, in the outside world, you've got a fighting chance to build and sustain long-term relationships with customers. And that has to be what you hang your hat on, I think, at the end of the day. And I think at Plow, that's what we're trying to do. And I'm sure uh, you know, those of you listening are probably in that same boat thinking about how do you sustain long-term relationships with people if you're in a B2B kind of environment. Uh, oh, really, and B2C as well. How do you get repeat customers? How do you keep having consumers come, come back to you, keep buying from you? um, over and over and over again, right? That's what you're looking for. Um, and I think the last thing we're trying to do, um, and this is sort of a, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but not really, um, is this idea of doing less better. Uh, and what that means is, you know, rather than being, you know, if you're a service provider, rather than having 15 services that you do pretty well, or you do them okay, can you figure out how to do six or seven really, really well, right? That leverage your capabilities, that, that leverage your people as best you can, that you feel like you really can, you really are adding the most value to the relationships that you have. Um, if you can do that over time, I think you make more money. Um, and you hedge, that's a great way to hedge, hedge against, um, things like inflation or recessions or other things, right? Because if you're really good and you're doing something that's creating a lot of value for people, they're going to have a hard time, you know, parting ways with you because you're so important to them. Right. And that's really where you want to be, um, as a, as a product or service provider. So I think those are the things none of which are, I mean, none of that's very comforting. It's not like there's some great solution to the situation in terms of inflation. Um, you know, and, and the plus side, I guess, if you're the person, if you're a company who's raised your prices because of inflation, then, then you've been able to grow your revenue, right. But your costs are, are going up at the same time. So it's sort of a, I mean, it's a little bit of a fool's game um, in in that sense. It doesn't mean people shouldn't try to raise their prices. Um, but the point is, it's almost always because costs are going up. So the net, what's hitting the bottom isn't really changing all that much. There's still the sp- the spread's the same. So, um, you know, I think I've kind of beat the horse on that. So we'll go to, it did, as I mentioned a couple of times in there, there's, you know, this idea of particularly around, finding good talent and keeping it and building longer term relationships, I think folds into this second topic, which came from based on an article I read in the wall street journal, um, a few days ago, it was on September 9th. And for those of you, if you're not a sports fan, you don't care about college football, bear with me. Um, I'll make this as painless as I can for you. um, because this is the article was about college football but it's directly relevant to what we're talking about, I think, around finding and keeping uh, talent. Uh, And it was an article about college football's transfer system. And if you don't know anything about it, basically, it used to be that if you played college sports, it was very difficult to transfer to another school. You had to give up a full year of eligibility. Um, You had to ask your coach for permission. I mean, there were a lot of restrictions. And so players didn't move from school to school very often at all. Well, that has changed dramatically in the last couple of years. And now it's Basically, I mean, it's pretty much a, you can pretty much transfer whenever you, you know, almost at any time you want now with some limits, but, but not many. And so players are taking advantage of it. Players are moving all over the place now. And there've been a lot of high profile stories, particularly around, I'll call marquee players, quarterbacks, or, you know, highly visible players from big schools going to other places to, and and immediately, you know, playing uh, at another school. Well, this journal article is interesting because they, they sort of delved in and looked the, the this transfer process has a portal. So a player has to submit information to the NCAA, get approved, and they go, to, they can go to the other school. So there's a data, there's a data set on who's moving, where, how many have done it, what position they play, all that kind of stuff. And so this author from this article has basically looked at all the data and done some analysis and the findings are interesting. Uh, they're, they're not counterintuitive, but they're counter to what you hear in terms of the, the volume of media coverage. Um, and what the data show is that the primary movers, the primary number, the the players who are moving from school to school are in general, not starters. They're mostly reserves, right? they are guys that are in gals who are at one school who aren't getting playing time. And so they are transferring to another school to try to get playing time. Um, which makes sense. That's their, their athletes. They want to play. Um, the other thing that's interesting about that is almost not, not, not exclusively, but most of them are trading down. In terms of brand, you know, school brand or prominence, to get playing time. Meaning, if you're a reserve at a big a Big Ten school, if you transfer, you're most likely going to a mid-major school. You're going to a smaller school that's not in as big a conference, so you can play, right? Which again makes perfect sense, right? If you want to get on the field and play, this gives you the chance to do that. Um, And the biggest driver of transfers, or the reason people are transferring, the primary reason, in addition to playing time, is a coaching change. Right, and so you say, okay, how is any of that freaking relevant to, you know, technology and and you know, recruiting uh, or keeping good people for your company, not even just technology people, anybody. And I, you know, I think the the most you know the, the number one thing that it says to me is, first of all, there is no transfer portal for companies, right? There's no easy way for us to track who's moving where, and for us to go find people who are basically raised their hand and said. Yeah, I want to. I want to move, uh, and I and I'm. This is what my skill set looks like, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there are sort of. There's LinkedIn. There's uh, you know job postings. All that kind of stuff. Those are sort of a proxy for it, but it's not that clean and neat. So the idea of finding talent that's out there that wants to come to your company, I think we would all agree is is a tricky proposition. It's hard. It takes time. It's expensive. You know, maybe you use recruiters. If not, you have your managers or your internal people. You know playing recruiter trying to find people I mean it's it's a it's it's a hard job to find good people and so retention is critical right if you can keep the good people that you have you don't have to go hire more people right and you can avoid that churn and that treadmill and there's a one part of the story was they were looking at the stats of schools who had lots of transfers <clears throat> and then contrasting that with a couple of the you know a couple of the major two of the most successful college football programs of modern, you know, in the last 10 years are Alabama and Clemson. And you can, you know, you can make all kinds of people have all kinds of arguments for why that's the case, why there is, they are as successful as they are, but they are also two. they have both of those schools have some of the lowest number of transfers, both out and in, uh, of any schools in the sort of the power five conferences, the big school, the big, the big power schools. And, yeah, they interviewed someone from Clemson and the, this guy's argument was, look, we are, we, are, we are trying to build a program here and we want guys to be here for a while. We have a specific culture that we are trying to instill in our players and we can't do that if we're constantly having new players you know, every year that are only here for a year. Okay? And so that you know, on its face makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm not saying everybody can do that, but I think that is what we're all sort of striving for is can we build a culture as a company so that when we hire people they we give them you know they they have a lot of they they have a, have opportunities right we've it's a place they want to be we've got the kind of culture that includes compensation uh you know benefits uh training opportunities learning growth autonomy uh the ability to get good at something the ability to you know to feel like the work that they do matters right? all of those things play into this sort of you know, cocktail of what's a, what, what's a, what's culture. Right. And, and we all can say we have it, you know, we can, we can point to it, but it's not necessarily, it's not a formula. It's not this plus this plus this equals good culture, but it's a mix of those things for sure. And I think that what we see from, from college football gives back to us a pretty clear picture of this. Retention is critical for a company, you know, for companies. If you want, don't want to spend all of your time recruiting, right. You've got to give your players, your, your, you're and and use the term players for your employees, both your technical people and your non-technical people, frankly, you got to give them playing time, right? They have to have a chance to grow. They've got to have a chance to stretch. They've got to have a chance to take some risks and to try to get better, right? Because that's the, that's the proxy for playing time. I think for a regular employee. And then the last piece is managers matter a whole lot, right? Just like coaches managers leave or if managers are bad players are going to you know they want to leave that school they don't want to stay there. I think I think our company and your company are exactly the same. If I'm a shitty manager, people don't want to work for me, right? And so they're going to leave. They're going to go find they're going to go somewhere else. I mean, there's the old saying about people quit managers not companies. And while I don't know that that's 100% true, it's probably 75 to 80% true for sure, right? I mean, there's other reasons why people leave, but that's a big one. And we want to make it about money, and I'm not saying money money matters a lot. I mean, let's face it, we all work because we need the money. I mean, it's not, you know, that's not, that's that's a given, but it's not the only thing that matters. In fact, I would argue there's a lot more going on underneath the surface for motivation or why we do what we do beyond the paycheck, particularly once you get above a certain level of income and that level of income is a lot lower than we think it is. Um, we want to make it about that because that's easy. It's quantifiable, simple. Uh, unfortunately, it's just not that simple. So figuring out a way to, you know, give you guys playing time, give your guys and gals playing time and making sure that you have the right managers in place is the best way to give yourself a chance to be more like Clemson or Alabama and less like a place that's having 15 or 20 people every leave every season and having to bring in 15 or 20 who got to play right away. Right. Because that is a constant, that's, that's the, that's the equivalent of turnover. It's the equivalent of, of having to fire or having people quit and constantly backfill. All right. So that's, um, you know, that's my sports, uh, tortured sports analogy for the day. Uh, for those of you, again, who hate sports, I hope you were able to suffer through that and, and find that it didn't completely waste your time. Um, the, third, the third bullet or the third item today I wanted to talk about, again, once more from an article from the Wall Street Journal. Not that the Wall Street Journal is the only thing to read, but I just found a couple in here that in the last couple of weeks that I thought were sort of interesting. And this one was, it caught my eye because it was, called, it was, it was something about predictive maintenance. And I, I actually thought it was a misprint at first. I was like, well, they must be talking about preventive maintenance, because that's what I've always heard, you know, PM, preventive maintenance, you know, like what you do on your car, getting oil changes and rotating your tires and that kind of stuff. Um, but no, it was predictive maintenance. And what's going on, the article was really it was about industrial companies. These are manufacturing companies that have machines that make stuff. Okay. So that's that's what the article was about. Big mostly big big manufacturing companies. And they've had a lot of you know, trying to maintain those machines in these factories has a constant challenge for them. Obviously, they're making significant investments in this machinery. They're trying to run it all the time or or as much as they can. And they want to extend the useful life of that. They want to, you know, maximize the investment, maximize the uptime so that they can get as much production out of it. All that makes perfect sense. Um, and my assumption was they had, you know, preventive ma- preventive maintenance schedules where someone came in and looked at the machine and, you know, changed out the filters or Grease the, I don't know, I'm not, an, I'm not an industrial guy, so all that just sounded terrible, but you get what I'm saying. I had an assumption that it was a manual intervention on a schedule, okay? And I think that's there, that no, no question about it, but what the article was about was this idea of predictive maintenance, and there are software companies that are now using kind of the internet of things. They're putting sensors on these machines and are monitoring, actually monitoring the sounds that the machines make. And they have a database they're using kind of machine learning and some AI to then listen to those sounds and compare them against their database of sounds that these machines make when they're like doing well, when they're fine and the machines they make when they're starting to struggle. Right. And, and I never really thought about that, that a machine might sound one way and then the sound would change over time until it broke or something went bad, you know, a part was going bad. But that's basically the the gist of what they're doing. Now that's that's maybe maybe overly simplistic, but I don't think so based on what I read. Um, and I was like, wow, that sounds kind of primitive. Just listening to the sounds and and then you know translating that into here's where it maybe is in its in its uh, you know life cycle or the the potential for something to break. But it seems to be working based on the data. The companies that are using these these uh, these software systems are having real success. Proactively coming in and fixing things based on these these uh, algorithms telling them, hey, you got a problem with machine number 12 over there. You probably need to, to do something about it because if you don't, it's going to break. Um, but then, you know, then I got to thinking about it. I was like, well, that's, we already have that in technology, right? We've been doing this for a while, right? And the IT equivalent or the technology equivalent of it is pretty simple, right? It's, this is device monitoring, right? Where we've got software on endpoints or on infrastructure machines, switches, routers, that kind of thing um that are constantly updating software because we don't want the software to get bad um, we don't have something listening to the to the sound that the actual devices make but again you know i guess maybe you could do that but but it's not really necessary right this is more looking at the the software itself or the machine itself and then trying to proactively again not on not on a, a set schedule it's not like we're going in every 90 days and making a change on the machine although you can do that but for example, antivirus software is constantly updating a machine and looking at, you know, is is it being patched the way it's supposed to do? Is it checking in when it's supposed to? do? And that's a one, that's really unique. It's a it's sort of a mass customization approach. It's unique to that particular machine. It's not on a, hey, every 90 days you got to go to Jiffy Lube and change your oil, right? It's, it's based on what, it's getting some feedback from the machine itself. And so, you know, that's happening on the device side. Um, it's happening on the software system side. So like, networks, you know, constantly monitoring network devices and traffic to look for patterns and seeing potential issues around, um, you know, if you're having throughput problems or if it looks like, now again, this is not, this is a different kind of maintenance, right? This isn't um, go fix wires. So for example, I'm not saying that we have, you know, uh, in terms of network monitoring, it means we can tell if a wire is bad. That's a different kind of issue, but I'm using it sort of as a proxy for, the network itself. Because at the end of the day, whether the wire is bad or not, generally the wire is not the problem, right? It's usually the actual software and the delivery of the packets themselves in the case of network of network connectivity. But this applies to, you know, collaboration software identity, like making sure that people are in the right groups, making sure that they're, um, you know, that they're um, where they're supposed to be. If there's, you know, looking for ways of identifying potential, fraudulent activity, all kinds of cybersecurity or anti, you know, anti-fraud mechanisms would fall into this bucket. Um, and then even the apps themselves, you know, looking at ap- application health, <clears throat> um, you know, having a set of data about an application, is it performing the way it's supposed to, are database calls happening when the, the way they're supposed to. And you can, track those, you can track that over time and see trends that would allow you to predict, hey, look, we maybe have a problem on the database side. We need to upgrade that. We need to expand its capabilities. We need to refactor. There's a bunch of things that could come from that. So um, I just found it interesting that what's happening on the industrial side really is sort of mirroring what uh, technology has been doing for a while and keeps, frankly, getting better and better at. Although one area that I don't think we're doing a good job at that we're putting some cycles into, and and if 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 you're a buyer, you should be you should be asking. Uh, you know, asking your team or asking your your providers about this as well. And that's what I'd call SaaS usage or optimization monitoring, right? So SaaS subscription services almost always have, you know, either a consumption model where you pay, you know, pay by the drink, if you want to use that expression, right, based on how much you use or uh, a per user or per license model based on some volume, right? A number of, of heads or a number of machines or something like that. Okay, fine. So at some point you got to buy that, right? And, and, and commit to some number. Well, and oftentimes on the consumption side, you have the opportunity to buy in bulk, right? Buy things in advance and rather than buying, you know, hundred gigabytes of storage, you know, as it happens, you go ahead and buy hundred in advance and you get it cheaper on the per gigabyte. Okay. That's, that's an obvious model, but how do you know how much to buy? Right. And, and how do you know if you're buying the right amount? Um, And what if things change, right? If you've got some flexibility, if you're not locked into a longer-term contract around your SaaS SaaS subscriptions, what if your business changes? Can, back to the conversation we were having earlier about scaling cost to revenue, what about just scaling usage to spend, right? If you've got something you're paying on a per head basis and your headcount varies, are you able to peg your SaaS usage to that? And the answer to that is perhaps, but it certainly won't happen if you don't have some way of monitoring and evaluating that data to give you the ability to do what we're, you know, to do sort of like uh, predictive maintenance around this kind of thing. Right. And I think we're going to see more of that going forward. SAS spend keeps going up. It's expensive oftentimes, even though it can feel cheap on a per user basis. But if you got a lot of users and you're growing, that number can go up quick on you. And this can be everything from, you know, B two B services, back office stuff, uh, you know, Microsoft 365, um, Salesforce, uh, your you know online banking services. If you're a bank, I mean, it could be there's a million different HR services, ERP systems. All this stuff is now you know had been has been converted to a SaaS model, and everyone you know celebrates it. But again, it can get really expensive on you if you're not watching it. And what I'm talking about is are you able to really feel like you're optimizing what you're spending in those systems? And I think that's where usage monitoring and optimization, I think there's a real opportunity for that. And I'd encourage you if you, if you haven't thought about that or if you have, and you don't feel like you guys are doing a good job of it, poke around, ask your partners, um, ask, ask your colleagues in other companies, what are they doing? See if there's a way for you to, to, to tighten that up. At least to have an idea. If nothing else, you'd be able to say, you know, to yourself and to your, you know, to your colleagues, Hey, look, I know we're spending a lot on Salesforce, but here's some data to support why that's a good use of our dollar. Right. And I don't know that people, I don't, I don't, I don't know that that's something that people are really doing a good job of yet. And we're trying to figure that out on behalf of our customers and for ourselves, because we are consumers of SaaS services just like you guys are. Um, and so I, I think it's a good, I think it's a good exercise for all of us to think about. So um, with that, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up. And that's all I've got for today. Um, in the spirit of three, this is my third solo recording. So I'm hoping that the third time's a charm. Uh, if you enjoyed it or if you didn't, um, please drop me a line at uh, cuttheshit at uh, and tell me why I did or I didn't do a good job or why you did or didn't enjoy it. Also, if you've got any topic or interview ideas, um, we've been doing this now for a little over a year. Um, we feel like we are kind of understand what we're doing. We're still learning um, and we'd still like to hear from others To say, hey, here's an idea. Here's something we think you guys ought to think about covering. Um, And so we'd love to hear from you on that front. Okay, that's all I've got for you this week. Take care and we'll talk to you in two weeks. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you were enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you would become a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, that would really help us out. Or you can just go old school and tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, and hell, anybody else who you think might want to hear something like this to listen in. If you're on social media, make sure to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at cuttheshit underscore pod. We are also on TikTok, at cuttheshitpod, all one word, where we post lots of clips from the podcast. And last but not least, you can also watch the YouTube version of the show on our YouTube channel, at Plow Networks. Until next time,